Global Capital Podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Global Capital Podcast. I'm Ralph Sinclair and I'm the Frequent Issuers Managing Editor. And I'm Mike Turner, Corporate Bonds Editor. Now each week we walk you through some of the most interesting stories in the capital markets and don't forget that everything we discuss on the show you can read about in more detail at globalcapital.com. And this week we've achieved a new milestone, Mike. Um, For the first time we've made it into the top 10 business news podcasts in the UK on Apple. Hey, fantastic. And I can't help but notice that that's coincided with your increased presence on the show. <laughs> yeah, um, that's it. I, I, yeah, I bring my fans with me everywhere I go. Well, I, you know, I, I can, I can see <laughs> where we get our downloads from, and I'll be checking later to see uh, where those extra UK listeners are from, and perhaps they're from your adopted Newcastle uh, homeland. I understand you're a pretty big deal up there. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That, that, that's that's definitely true. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well. Why I or whatever it is, <laughs> yeah, people say. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, coming up later, regular listeners will know that we've tracked the woes of the European IPO market for the last couple of years. Well, finally, it looks like there's some good news, uh, perhaps. And our equities editor, Aidan Gregory, will be joining us to tell us about what that is. Uh, but first, we've got a bad news story. And that's from you, Mike, and our corporate loans reporter, Anna Fatty. And you've uh, written this week about the the increasing perils of the property sector in the capital markets. Um, give us a brief overview of the sort of sort of troubles they've been having, because they were on an absolute debt binge a couple of years ago. So what's 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 changed? Yeah, they, they were, and it's really come home to roost. Um, so the, the real estate sector is just in an absolute shambles and is in real trouble. Um, and it has been for a while, but there are certain um, developments that we can get into that that sort of show that it's a sort of dynamic and moving target for, for a lot of these companies. Um, basically, the problem is that they were some of the highest um, debt users in 2021, in the, in the good old days. Um, and now debt is way more expensive, more expensive than rents in, in many cases. Um, and at the same time, uh, you've got lots of people working from home and companies downsizing and people not using real estate in the way that they have done for you know generations, really. Um, and this has just caused a huge problem that is having, having big knock-ons and is making real estate companies need to look to new sources to try and find financing. Okay, now you've uh, you've focused your story uh, this week on a bit of financing for Canary Wharf Group, which is the uh, uh, the company that owns a bunch of offices in uh, London's Docklands. Um, many of our listeners would, of course, work there, um, not the ones in Newcastle, obviously. Um, <laughs> what have they done, and how's that sort of emblematic of what's going on? So, so Canary Wharf Group raised four hundred million sterling from its owners um, through a three hundred million quid equity injection and a 100 million pounds revolving credit facility um, and that's from Qatar Investment Authority and the asset manager Brookfield and and just up top it's important to say that a Canary Wharf spokesperson was very clear that this was done as a show of confidence by Canary Wharf Group's owners and not because um, Canary Wharf Group couldn't access bank lending or other borrowing options but nonetheless um, it is you know it's indicative of the kind of ways that real estate companies, particularly office uh, owners, 
um, have got to look to types of financing which maybe they wouldn't have needed in the past. Certainly wouldn't have needed during quantitative easing when when money was very cheap. Um, and it comes at a, at a challenging time for Canary Wharf because they've lost some really, really major customers. Um, Clifford Chance, the, the Magic Circle law firm, is moving out of Canary Wharf, moving back to the city. Um, HSBC has said that it's moving to the city and HSBC uh, office in Canary Wharf is, is one of the sort of totemic offices of, of the uh, skyline there. So that's a really major deal. And then, of course, Credit Suisse will almost certainly not be renewing their uh, lease because they've gone bankrupt. So, you know, these are these are big blows. Um, nonetheless, you know, all the, the top bods involved in Canary Wharf and its ownership are, are confident that, that, you know, there's big opportunities coming. But if you take that microcosm of Canary Wharf and then play that out across the entire real estate sector, there's real trouble brewing. Well, let's do that. I mean, uh, S&P, uh, I think you said in your story, has put um, 30% of the 65 real estate companies that it rates on negative outlook. During the years of quantitative easing, uh, when money was cheap, that portion was only 5% to 10%. So that really does sort of show how how bad the outlook is for the sector. Um, so what are they doing about it? Well, uh, there are sort of different approaches. There is the the approach that um, some have taken all through this year of just sort of getting your head down and hoping things get better and then reaccessing the debt markets again. Um, we've had very little issuance from the real estate sector in the in the high grade bond market um, with only three companies rated below A minus coming. Um, and, and it should actually be said that when talking about the real estate market, the, the mega companies, the really, really big ones, companies like Venovia in Germany, for example, people are unanimous that they can still access all the funding they need and they want. Um, it's the it's the smaller companies that are really feeling the pain here. Um, so th- there's a lot of sort of alternative um, funding that's, that's started to circle the real estate sector. Uh, things like private debt from institutional investors or... Um, hedge funds, stressed funds, you know, these these sorts of uh, yield-orientated lenders. Lenders who love a bit more risk, basically. Yeah, a bit more risk and a bit more reward. And it's, you know, in an ideal world, if you're the CFO or a treasurer of, of one of these companies, you wouldn't necessarily need to deal with these lenders. But it's, you know, you kind of forced your hand. Yeah, yeah. Now, I suppose um, one thing in the sector's favour is uh, that it, well, it owns property. It obviously does that with a lot of debt, but it does own property. And those are big assets that can be sold. So that presumably is another way for these sort of companies to get through this rather horrible patch. It is, but if they were to sell them now, they'd be selling them at a massive, massive discount, mm. um, which which is, you know, a, a major issue. No one wants to no one wants to do that. Um, the When this will really come to a head, uh, I suspect, is... Um, the, the back end of 2024, we're going into 2025, a lot of debt is coming due, a lot needs to be refinanced. And if companies haven't got to the stage where they can, um, you know, access bond markets easily or bank financing easily, or these sort of more alternative financing routes, then they're going to have to sell assets because then they'll need that money or their mm. company will, will be, uh, you know, insolvent. Um, so, that's that's when we might start seeing, you know, could start seeing fire sales if things haven't worked themselves out yet. And it's one of those markets as well, because it's so illiquid that you need sales to happen so that everyone else can see the cost of these assets. 
so then you know the, you know the price of the next sale. Yeah, the benchmark. Yeah, exactly. So and mm -hmm. and you know in, in stuff like the bond markets, in the liquid bond markets, that happens all the time anyway. So the benchmarks are constantly there for everyone to see. But because these asset sales happen much more rarely, um, the first one or two to go will really sort of set the tone for everyone else. Yeah. Now one of the um, one of the bond syndicate uh, bankers that you spoke to for the story, Mike, said that the sector was squealing. And now we're used to um, the bond market sort of turning its back on um, unfavoured sectors. Uh, the loan market is often a bit different. It tends to react a lot more slowly uh, to impending peril uh, because it tends to be built much more on relationships and sticking with a, a, a borrower client through thick and thin. Um, what did loans bankers tell us this week about how they feel about lending to property companies? <laughs> well, one, one of uh, my colleague, Anna Fatty, who, who wrote the story with me, she covers the loan market in more detail. Um, she spoke to a German loans banker and uh, German banks traditionally have quite a high um, exposure to real estate. And he said that they, he hasn't seen his real estate team in quite some time. So that I think is indicative of how important banks are seeing this <laughs> they're just they're just staying well away um, probably, and probably just working from home maybe oh, like well, yeah, else. exactly yeah <laughs> they've downsized the office <laughs> um, um but the uh whenever i've spoken to loans bankers and i have have done a few times in recent weeks they they tell me a similar line to, to what you just said about how sticking with your clients through thick and thin and being there and being the relationship and all that um but then you bring up real estate and you particularly bring up you know, not the premier top stellar real estate borrowers. And they say, oh, no, we don't lend to them. We, we, you know, <laughs> we stay away from them. Um, so, you know, there's there are difficulties there. Generally speaking, yeah. the loans loans market is, is pretty pragmatic and tends to be uh, a bit more pragmatic, really, than the bond market, which, which is more reactive. Um, and, you know, companies with existing lines... I can imagine that loans bankers will be, you know, trying to work out ways to refinance those in reasonable ways that don't just leave the company completely hamstrung because, mm. you know, banks want their money back more than they want to own an office block. But what about these distressed lenders, though? I mean, I guess they probably don't want to end up owning office blocks either unless it's at an incredibly big discount. Um, but they're not known for their um, generosity of terms when it comes to lending, are they? Um, do you think this will end up in a fire sale of assets at some point? Or do you think it's about finding a pragmatic way through for the sort of sector to, to basically keep servicing its debt and stay alive? I guess perhaps just to do that. No, I, th I think it will, it will be a fire sale. I think the, the higher for longer talk from central banks about rates really does... Um, mean that keeping your head down isn't going to be an option for for you know anyone but the best companies who have got money to sort of burn through a bit hmm. um it, it there's really going to be little other choice because they're going to need the money and they're just going to be sitting on these assets that are losing the money and and they're not going, going to have any other way to get it well you'd hope they'd take uh, perhaps some encouragement from the european central bank which on thursday uh, stood pat on interest rates uh, i think for the first time in about a year it didn't put them up um that now brings it into line with the last or the most recent rate decisions by the bank of england and the more importantly the u.s federal reserve um and that of course has had uh, will have ramifications for the bond market generally um, now, one of the things I thought was interesting about yesterday's ECB announcement and the sort of meeting and press conference that went with it was that there had been a lot of talk in the run-up 
to the meeting about um, changes to the pandemic emergency purchase program. Um, the ECB, had, well, it had been a lot of talk uh, in the run up to the meeting around the market. The ECB might um, stop reinvesting money that uh, comes through redemptions through bonds held in the pandemic emergency purchase program. So it's mostly SSA bonds, uh, government bonds in particular, and Italian government bonds very much in particular, um, back into the market, uh, which would, of course, uh, have a knock on effect on on probably pushing yields up. Um, and that's got uh, SSA bankers thinking about how the market is going to be for the rest of the year and more importantly, next year. Yeah, the, the, the start of next year is is really the key here because so many SSA issuers, they're just given the nature of, of the types of issuers there, they're very open and clear with the amounts they need to borrow and, you know, with their schedules and things like that. Um, mm. And many will be at the end or really close to the end of their uh, 2023 needs already. Um, so a, a lot of this is looking forward to the start of 2024 when, you know, things are going to go very uh, gangbusters and very busy because people want to get a good start on their funding programs. And and knowing that PEP isn't on the agenda for now, will give, we'll give, I think, a, uh, a boost to issuance. Yeah, and of course, you know, a bleak outlook, uh, the sort of thing um, that, uh, you know, people are sort of predicting at the moment would, of course, be good for the SSA sector next year, uh, especially if it materialises as soon as January when, they, you know, they do the biggest chunk of their funding. Um, I think one of the analysts that uh, Georgie Lee, our SSA reporter, uh, told us for this story was that um, if if there's further inflation and a threat of recession, um, then, you know, that's probably good for the SSA market. But of course, you get a flight to quality, as will any sort of, um, you know, I hate to use the word good, but, you know, it will it will drive down. Better rated. Exactly. Yeah. But, you know, the, 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 the things that happen in the real world aren't good, of course, uh, including the sort of escalation of conflict in the in the Middle East. But um, they have the effect of uh, driving a flight to quality. Uh, and a flight to better rated assets for um, investors. And that, of course, plays well into demand for SSA bond issuers. But the market is still volatile and there are still um, issuers that, that have you know bits and pieces to do. So uh, I wonder how they're going to approach the rest of the year. Yeah, that's right. There are still uh, agencies and other borrowers with bits and bobs to do uh, that they will have to be in the market to raise. And um, as Addison Gong, our SSA editor, pointed out this week, uh, there's there's an increase in the number of issuers that are bringing multi-tranche syndications to market. Um, that's hardly a revelation to uh, a corporate bond expert such as yourself, <laughs> Mike, where these things are just, you know, they're to a penny. But in the SSA market, uh, simplicity uh, and predictability is is prized above all. So you don't generally bring two tranches unless you have to. Uh, or you're like the European Union, you're doing absolute massive funding. And the point about doing it, of course, is it allows you to hit different groups of investors with bonds in different maturities. They're a slightly smaller size in each to get the overall size you want, but without exhausting each pocket of demand and uh, having to pay up to do it. So um, probably those agencies and others that will have to come for the rest of the year uh, will look to recent deals from Austria and KFW, where the deals are split into different tranches as, uh, as as the way to go. Yeah, KFW in US dollars, that was the first time it ever sold a dual tranche syndicated uh, bond in dollars. And I think that uh, is indicative of the way that um, SSA 
issues are looking at the market and how they can approach it. Mm. Um, but I, I, I mean, I think I think it's a good idea. I think it's it's kind of surprising. Well, I guess given how easy money was to come by for the past you know ten years or so, um, it it didn't need to be done. But it makes sense that issuers are now looking to do these sorts of things and looking to change things up a bit. And as as Addison wrote in her leader, um, you know, it's sensible issues issuers that are adapting and and making the market work for them. And SSA issues are nothing if not sensible. <laughs> to a fault. <laughs> to a fault, absolutely. Now, we spoke to Aidan Gregory about what might be occurring in the IPO market next year. And it's not nothing for once. Hello, Aidan. Welcome back to the podcast. Good morning, Ralph. Uh, now, IPOs have generally been in quite a poor state over the last two years as uh, keen listeners to the global podcast and indeed readers of your coverage in Global Capital will know. Um, can you just give us a flavour, just quickly, for the uninitiated, just how bad it's been for IPO volumes? Well, a poor state is probably putting it slightly mildly when uh, the IPO market has effectively been closed for much of the last two years and volumes fell off a complete cliff after an unprecedented boom in during 2021 when we still had ultra low interest rates and mm. surging equity markets during the pandemic. So just to give you an idea of the context, there have been this year to date, there have been $25.5 billion raised from IPOs in, in the EMEA region. That compares to $36.6 billion during the same period last year, which was also pretty poor year for IPOs in the region, uh, mitigated by the fact that there was a boom in the Middle East. But then if you compare it to 2021, when $105.5 billion was raised during the same period, uh, you know, it gives you an idea of the scale of the downturn that has afflicted the, the IPO market due to inflation and rising interest rates and obviously the fallout from the war in Ukraine last year. So that's been pretty rough then this year. Um, is the outlook any better? Um, it isn't much better in the short term. And, you know, we've had these impaired exit markets now for, for such a, a long period of time that it's almost become the new normal. And at, at the start of this year, there was hope in the market that inflation was going to be transitory and that central banks would start cutting interest rates. And clearly, you know, that, that never happened. And we're now going to be stuck with higher for longer interest rates and you know that has huge consequences for, for capital markets uh, interestingly M&A volumes have also sunk to kind of lowest levels in in like in over a decade so it isn't just IPOs like the other traditional exit route has also been severely impaired but of course uh You've uncovered uh, something or an area of uh, the sort of corporate ownership landscape that might now have to use the IPO market. And that will, of course, uh, give uh, those involved in IPOs a something to buy, something to enjoy and something to look forward to. Um, because, of course, you know, it's not just the fact there haven't been as many deals. It's when they have come. They've either been whipped away at the last minute and pulled, like uh, Planisware, which you wrote about recently, or uh, in some cases they've they've gone south very quickly after pricing. Um, you wrote about uh, cab payments this week. 
So it's it's been a pretty torrid time for everybody, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, not only have we had the slowdown in volumes, but the the track record of the deals that have actually come to market, of which there have been few, has been very poor. Uh, and you know, it, it, it shot farmer a few weeks ago is kind of the standout deal of the year, really, in terms of its size and quality and how it traded up so much in the aftermarket. But it's very much the exception. Like for for pretty much all of the other deals that are priced, the aftermarket performance has been pretty lacklustre. And then mm. obviously we did also have two IPOs in Europe pulled earlier this month. So it's a pretty sad reflection of the kind of state that the the market's in. You wouldn't choose, you wouldn't list an asset in this market unless you're either so big and high quality that you're pretty much impervious to what's going on in the broader market, or you're just totally desperate and you're willing to accept like a huge, huge valuation discount to get an IPO across the line, which obviously doesn't apply to most sellers, which is why they've stayed away. So what is the sort of level of discount that people are having to offer at the moment? I mean, at the moment, uh, it of course depends on the company. But generally speaking, if you ask many of the sort of senior ECM bankers, the the IPO discount in Europe at the moment is somewhere between twenty to thirty percent, which is pretty punishing. Mm. Mm. Okay, but you've uh, you've uncovered a, as I as I sort of mentioned earlier, you've uncovered a, a possible source of IPOs, uh, sellers that will sort of have to come to market. Perhaps um, tell us a bit about what you found out this week. Yeah, so typically the biggest users of the IPO market uh, in a normal year would be financial sponsors, i.e. private equity companies who want to list their portfolio companies that they have have owned. Typically, private equity companies, they own their assets on like a three to five year timeline and then they will look to, to exit either through like a stock market listing or you know, a full sale in the in the M and A market, and obviously with with both of these exit markets severely impaired for the last two years, that hasn't been possible. So the result is we've ended up with this quite large backlog of private equity owned IPO candidates, which need to list, uh, but haven't been able to. And thus far, the a lot of these private equity groups have been happy to just sit on their hands and and wait for market conditions to improve but unfortunately they haven't really improved so you know so much time has now passed Uh, the market hasn't really gotten that much better and a lot of these sponsors are under growing pressure to start monetizing and returning cash to their lps because if they can't do that it it impairs their ability to raise new funds to go and target new takeovers and, and and new deals basically Okay, well, um, and why why would these companies need to come to the IPO market rather than, say, uh, do a private sale of the businesses they own? Well, first of all, some of them, uh, a lot of these businesses are, are very mature businesses and they're quite large. So therefore, a full-on sale either to like a trade slash industry buyer or another private equity company is fairly limited particularly in a market where you know you have interest rates running at nearly near 5% in Europe and you know the co- the cost of leverage buyouts at the moment is prohibitively expensive so it makes selling and buying assets incredibly difficult so it pretty much only leaves the equity the public equity markets 
as an exit route. So that's that's interesting. It's not as if these companies are coming to the IPO market um, with conditions they're improving. It's more that they're going to have to be price takers effectively, isn't it? Yes, exactly. Um, they will be, I mean, depending on the asset, of course, but like generally there there is something that's going to have to give soon. And a lot of these businesses are going to end up having to float next year even if their owners aren't necessarily totally happy with the the valuations that are on offer and it will be different from firm to firm like some firms have other assets that they can sell and they can return cash to their shareholders that way so for example like Blackstone has been selling like billions of dollars of shares in London Stock Exchange Group this year Uh, obviously LSEG is already listed and it's far far easier to do that that they have this they have this extremely liquid like large cap asset that they can sell sell billions of shares in to to return some cash more easily but not every not every sponsor is like Blackstone and many of them haven't been able to realize the value of their investments and will therefore be in a more difficult position than than others yeah, sort of an end to the era of, of wishful thinking, perhaps. I thought it was interesting in your story. Uh, one of the private equity sources you spoke to uh, said it's 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 more a case that it's taking 18 to 24 months for people's re- expectations to change rather than for the conditions in the market to change. Yeah, yeah. It's all about, uh, it's all about expectations. And I think you also have to remember that these private equity companies basically had uh, an enormous party for well over a decade in the era of ultra low interest rates when money and and money was cheap and you know the equity markets kept going up and even when there were kind of breakdowns in in equity capital markets they were relatively short and the market always managed to pick itself up afterwards whereas now i mean this is you know one of the other sort of longest slumps in the market that i've written about in my in my career so far it's, it's it's different to to before completely. So who do you think some of the candidates might be to to bring IPOs? So there are a lot of like mid mid market companies. Uh, I mean, in terms of the kind of large cap deals, the one company that everyone expects and will be looking out for is a company called Galderma in Switzerland. It used to be the skincare business of Nestle before Nestle sold it to to a consortium led by EQT, the Swedish private equity group. So that, I mean, that IPO, when it happens on the Six Swiss Exchange, at some point next year will be, you know, it will be a jumbo IPO and it will be one of the biggest deals of the year. Do, do you suspect that if that goes well, it could sort of open the floodgates? Perhaps, but the problem is like not every company is like Galderma. Um, Galderma, is, Galderma is widely regarded as being a high quality business and it will be very large and it will be very liquid as a deal which in in such a volatile market backdrop there's a huge premium placed by investors on liquidity and this is one of the main problems with the European IPO market at the moment is that it's effectively closed to to mid-cap issuers and the bulk of the pipeline in Europe will naturally be from the mid-cap space. What's, what's the problem with mid-cap companies? bringing IPOs? Is it a problem of liquidity in their stock? Yeah, well, the, the main problem that if you ask um, if you ask market sources about this, the problem is when you have a mid-cap company, 
say a deal size from you know 200 to, to 300 million euros uh, it doesn't take much if the stock starts trading down for the losses to be even worse it's simply because there's just not that much stock available and you know it becomes it becomes much more liquid basically and it can exact this can exacerbate price moves sure sure i mean yeah we see the same in the bond market don't we um and now what can now let's say you know you're one of these private equity companies you've got your end investors screaming at you to return some money uh to them um down the phone every week um but Obviously, you you own these mid cap companies. It's going to be tough to bring an IPO without uh, suffering an eye watering discount. What can you do ahead of ahead of the IPO uh, to mitigate some of your your sort of risk of that deal? So there are some tricks that they can they can turn to uh, in in a market like this. Uh, one thing that they can do is with their portfolio companies, they can try and raise more capital privately ahead of a listing to basically raise funds to to delever so that when you come to do the actual IPO the amount of money that you need to raise is a lot less and therefore the IPO is is less of a challenge so like Galdama itself for example did this earlier this year they raised they raised a billion dollars privately from shareholders and new investors with the proceeds going towards like repaying the company's debt so sources close to the deal have said that it's going to mass. It's going to make the IPO so much easier because they won't need to raise anywhere near as much quantum when it comes to actually doing the listing. So, so why doesn't why doesn't everyone just do that then? I mean, well, it's quite tri- it's quite tricky um, convincing, you know, public market investors and sovereign wealth funds to basically give a private equity company an opportunity to cash out while still being in a liquid asset and you know and not having any kind of control and and all the control still rests with with the sponsors so it's a pretty tough ask i mean galdermo was able to do it but as i said before galdermo is widely regarded as one of the highest quality ipos in the whole pipeline so you know what what they've done doesn't necessarily apply to most companies so alongside private um privately placing X's is there anything else that companies can do uh, there is and this is where it starts to get a little bit bizarre for them uh, but I mean in private equity there's they they have things called continuation funds where they pick they can basically transfer the ownership of, of these companies to these funds and they essentially get warehoused on the on the balance sheet and uh, until such a time when an exit is either doable or right for for these assets. So there is growing talk in the industry about more and more continuation funds simply because the amount of time that has lapsed for a lot of portfolio companies like extending far beyond the typical three to five year timeline. Well, don't forget, there's no better place to track how higher interest rates affect each part of the capital markets from debt to equity than by listening to this podcast. It's free and it's out every Friday and by reading globalcapital.com. 
Thank you to Mike and to Aidan for joining me for this episode. And thank you most of all for listening. We'll be back with more from the capital markets next week. So thank you and goodbye. 